I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, I've got something new for you in the podcast, complete interviews, and this one is with Brian Eno. Usually, you hear about eight minutes of an interview in any Echoes feature, but those eight minutes are usually culled from conversations that sometimes stretch to two hours or more. But now, we are releasing the unexpurgated versions. We'll be giving you recent Echoes interviews, as well as interviews from the archives, including from our 1980s radio series, Totally Wired. These have never been broadcast in full. Today's interview is with Brian Eno, and it goes back to 1987. More on that ahead. Joining us in support of Echoes is Kevin Keller, an artist who's been in Echoes' favor for more than 25 years. With his intimate piano, lush strings, and vast sonic expanses, Kevin Keller has inspired listeners with his ambient chamber music since the mid-90s. In fact, I first coined the term ambient chamber music in reference to Kevin. So it's kind of full circle that his latest album is called Ambient Chamber Music. It is a compilation of some of his best works in that chamber mode, and it features performances by cellist Clarice Jensen, Mina Cho, and David Darling. Kevin Keller's ambient chamber music is available on all streaming services and as a CD and download at kevinkeller.com. That's kevinkeller.com. And now to our interview. In the 1980s, I produced a radio series called Totally Wired, Artists and Electronic Sound. It started in 1982, and it took us five years to snag Brian Eno, which we finally did in 1987. At that time, albums like Another Green World, Ambient One, Music for Airports, and Apollo, they were all out, and his latest release was the deeply ambient Thursday afternoon in 1985. Also behind him was his low hero. Lodger collaborations with David Bowie. We talk a lot about those releases as well as Oblique Strategies, his card set design for prompting creativity. I conducted the interview in his apartment in the Kensington section of London. Brian sat in an heirloom-looking easy chair while I stuck my Electro Voice 635A microphone in his face, switching it back and forth as we spoke. His manager, Anthea Norman Taylor, prepared tea of course, they would be married the next year. I start my interview with an erroneous statement about his music. And going over some of your, your work and going through the ambient series, I, I found it interesting that I could find very few instances where you used environmental sounds. Oh, I do, quite a lot. Um, in On Land, there's, I think on nearly every track, there's environmental sound. But it's, it's quite often so processed that it isn't very obviously environmental. It's, um, for instance, slowed down a great deal or treated or mixed in with electronic sounds. Um, so there's quite a lot of environmental sound on that. Um, let me think what other things. Some on some of the Harold Budd stuff occasionally. Um, Another way of using environmental sound that I worked with for a while was um, of recording things through specially constructed strange microphones. So this would be an ordinary microphone with a big tube on the end, for example. And sometimes the tube would go out through a car park and back into the studio. So there would be some, theoretically, some resonance from the outside world affecting the sound as it went down. These experiments were limited in scope and not all that successful. <laughs> um, but yes, music for airports doesn't have any environmental sound. Uh, I can't think of any other records I've made at the moment. Apollo. <laughs> Apollo, oh that does, yeah. But it's interesting, I think when people think of, of ambient sound they think of... Oh, environmental yes. sound, yes. Um, well, what I meant was, I did mean environmental sound, but I meant 
I meant that as a prescription for composers to think of their own sound as environmental sound, to think of what they were making as, as part of the environment, just as the things we're listening to now are. Um, so it was really a, an attempt to suggest a shift in the way people were thinking about what music did. Um, because for many years there was a big distinction between what composers were doing what assumptions they were addressing and what people were doing with music. People were buying records, putting them on and doing their housework and or writing or reading a book or the kinds of things that everybody does when they listen to music. Composers were still making music as though people were buying the record, rushing home, putting it on and sitting in front of their stereo with their ears glued in the way that one watches a film or something like that. Now, I'm sure you'd agree that that isn't the common experience of people listening to music anymore. Uh, music has become part of the tapestry of your life, like lighting is, or like um, the environmental sound that you hear anyway is. And so, although people do still listen to music like that, a lot of the time they're not doing so. And I thought that composers were not really addressing the new way that people were listening. and. Anyway, I was excited by, by the idea of making music that um, acknowledged that and said, here, here's a music specially for that. Here's a music that is intended to um, merge into the environment. Um, a part of the reason was because I found myself listening to less and less music because I couldn't find music that suited the way I wanted to listen. So I ended up with you know, a dozen favorite pieces of music that I was always listening to again and again um, because they were capable of letting me do what I wanted while the music was on. Most of the music I had required all of my attention or I had to switch it off. It, it didn't give me a choice in between. I wanted something that gave me a choice, really. And so I started making it because I couldn't find many instances of it. You um, haven't put out an album since, is Apollo the last one or on land? Apollo. Apollo, which was four years ago, I think, three or four years ago. And I think the only vinyl that's come out is, was that Art Forum piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't been so interested in music for the last, at least in records, that's, that's something different. I've been interested in music, but records have haven't claimed much of my attention. I don't know if you know that for the last eight years, I think, yeah, I've been doing a lot of visual work as well. And I've had about 65 exhibitions of my visual work. Now, those exhibitions always involve music as well. And they involve a rather complicated form of environmental music, which uh, I think is unique to those exhibitions. It's a, a technical system that um, I thought of and I use in all of those shows. And it's a system whereby the music constantly regenerates itself so that it just doesn't repeat. So the music is always changing in those exhibitions for over a year at a time, you know. Um, they're very long pieces of music, in fact. and. This is so much closer to the feeling that I wanted in ambient music. I wanted the notion of something that was steady state in the sense that uh, it was always pretty much reliably similar, but it was never exactly the same. Um, a little bit like any natural process, you know, like uh, watching a river or something like that, where it doesn't pull many really big surprises on you but at the same time it never repeats itself perfectly. So I want to make some music that had that rather homogenous but ever-changing character to it. And of course records are a limitation there because you get 22 minutes on a side and then you play that side again. Um, CDs are less of a limitation because they're longer, and cassettes the same thing. But in these exhibitions I've been able to 
make music that actually doesn't ever repeat effectively, as far as any audience is concerned. It doesn't ever repeat. Um, and this has seemed to me so much more an exciting prospect for music that I've rather concentrated on that. Now... This is a multiple cassette system. Yes, that's right. And I've used that in various different forms. I did one in Japan that had 42 channels of sound rather than eight, which is what I normally use here. Um, and there have been variations in between that as well. I have one in Italy at the moment that has 14 channels of sound. Um, it's in a botanical garden. Well, that's the other thing, of course, that my, my other interest is in working in spaces that are unusual. I, I love working in odd places. Um, records haven't got quite that frisson of novelty that they did have for me 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Um, whereas working in a big botanical garden or in a, a huge industrial trades fair or in a church or something like that really is a stimulating thought for me. Because I, I think of, I make the music for those places then. And for what I anticipate is the um, speed that people are moving through the place and their progression from one corner of the room to another. So it becomes a sort of an architectural problem as well. And I like, I really enjoy those problems. They're not problems, opportunities, I should say. Um, now, that's not to say that I don't, I do record music a lot still. I've, I've got a studio at home, good studio, and I've been doing a lot of recording. And some of that keeps threatening to come together into record form, but I'm not really forcing it, you know. I, I don't like this feeling of, oh dear, better make another record, which I sometimes get, you know. I sometimes think, God, I haven't released a record for four years. But then I think, well, so what? What if I never release another record? What difference does that make to anything in the world? You know, I've, I'll do other things. I've always said that my... Um, to myself that my freedom was to be able to to change direction and to follow, pursue whichever course I was interested in. But uh, though I eventually do that, I do it with terrible misgivings because I always think, oh dear, I haven't, haven't written a song for, or I haven't done this, or I haven't done that for such a long time. Don't you feel any responsibility to the Eno cult out there? No, I feel a responsibility to... Um, to do what I've always done, which is to to follow my nose, actually. <laughs> um, I mean, the reason the Eno cult likes me, <laughs> if they still do, is because that's what I've done in the past. I've, I've, um, I found an area interesting and followed it. Um, I mean, if I hadn't done that, I'd still be in Roxy or something like that, you know. Well, I wouldn't, because Roxy doesn't exist, but... I, yes, I do feel, um, of course, one would like to please everyone all the time. <laughs> and, but I still get people writing to me, asking me uh, why I don't wear makeup or things like that, you know. Um, you can't, you have to let go of things. It's much harder to let go of things than to do new things. People don't realize that. They always think how courageous it is to do something new that, was uh, not foreseen or predicted. But in fact, the, I think the courage is in letting go of something old that is um, successful and has its own momentum. Because things always, by the time I'm losing interest in them, have always gathered momentum. So there's always a, like a feeling of jumping off a train, you know. <laughs> The train's still going, and I just think, right, time to get off now. <laughs> it's gone far enough. Um, and it is hard to... That momentum is always a pressure on you, because things that are successful, or things that have been successful, always look so much more finished and uh, refined and stylish than the things you're working on at the moment. What you're working on now always seems incredibly clumsy and amateur and pathetic and, 
and you don't know whether anyone will like it or whether you're going to like it in the end. So you're contrasting that, this new thing that for some reason you have some faith in, with this wonderful finished work from the past, you know. And uh, it's always a dispiriting process for a while until you you finally finish something, you, you get the thrill from it, you know. You know, one thing about this multiple cassette installation system that you have is that not only do you hear the music differently every time you walk into the installation, but no one will have the same experience in the installation. That's right, because it's uh, it physically changes over the space of the place as well. Of course, the larger the space is, the more, the more that's the case. In the botanical gardens in Rome, um, the show that's on at the moment, the music is arranged so that there are in fact two different, two quite different pieces of music which are not, nevertheless in the same key and almost in the same mode. They're two related modes. And the, the physical arrangement, or if you like, the geographical arrangement of the piece is such that you can be either entirely in one of the pieces, entirely in the other one, but then you have lots of hybrid areas in between. So there are special locations among the... This is a very large garden, so it's possible to create special little spaces where you have um, like two-thirds of one piece and one-quarter of the second piece. Um, and that makes really quite a different feeling, quite a different piece of music, in fact. And... Um, this is, I've never experimented with hybridizing two separate pieces like that before. And it's given me a lot of um, ideas for the future. I'm now thinking of, there's a possibility that I'll be doing an installation next year in Berlin. And I'm thinking of making something that tries to hybridize four different pieces so that you have perhaps um, 16 or 20 oases of quite different m musical experiences, if you like. You, you've done that in your music, though, haven't you? Taken like older pieces and, and grafted them on to pieces that you are yeah. currently working with? Yeah, it's because I have so few ideas. <laughs> I have to keep reusing them. <laughs> like Harold Buzz, Bud says, if you get something good, you have to milk it for all it's worth. <laughs> No, I, I do, I do reuse things a lot, and because recontexting something is really a, a way of reinventing it, you know, putting taking something from here and putting it here in new company, it uh, it suddenly has all sorts of charges and resonances that it didn't have before. It's like um, the difference you can make to a to a painting by framing it differently. And framing is quite a lot of the... Framing is a big interest of mine. I have this phrase, which I've been using lately, which I call cultural framing, which is the... Just as an artist puts a frame around his painting and presents that, the act of presentation, that's to say all the questions of where it is, who sees it, what price tag is on it, uh, what types of critics write about it, um, what type of audience is attracted to it, um, what aura of inclusivity or exclusivity surrounds it. All of those things are cultural framing. And all of those are messages to people as well. They're messages that in general aren't considered um, or, or are considered to be peripheral messages, not very important to the work itself. Well, it's quite clear that with some artists that isn't true, like Andy Warhol is, is someone for whom cultural framing was, was a very big issue. Quite a lot of other artists, Joseph Boyce I would say is a cultural framer. It's not something that music has notably, has shown the same uh, enthusiasm for as painting and sculpture have, or the visual arts in general. And I'm starting to become interested in this idea of looking at that frame. And so 
taking the music and saying, all right, now where does it go? What does it do? What's it a part of? Who hears it? What are they doing while they hear it? All of those kinds of issues. So this is all a bit different from making records in a way, um, because with making records, of course, you don't, there are many aspects of the cultural frame that are quite beyond your control anyway. Um, there are some that I like very much too. I like, I like the fact that records are a kind of a democratic medium compared to paintings in that all records cost the same pretty much. So to buy um, the most high-flown piece of contemporary recorded culture costs you the same as buying Sig Sig Sputnik or uh, Lee Perry or something like that, you know. And I, I like that um, difference from the other arts. But I also like the... I'm interested in the... Um, in the type of cultural frame that I now have in the botanical gardens in Rome. It's rather a mysterious one. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with concepts of where music is played or what people do with music. People don't go to botanical gardens to listen to music generally, but they are there now. I guess installations are a democratic way of presenting art as well. Yes, I like installations <coughs> a lot for that. Um, the, I've, I've tried generally to avoid art galleries. I, I have shown in art galleries, but I've tried to show in um, less specific space, less specified spaces than that, like churches, just public halls of different kinds, uh, lots of different spaces, uh, theatres sometimes, um, but generally in spaces that people didn't feel, didn't go in feeling, oh, this is an art gallery. I, I like it to be more the feeling of the circus comes to town, you know, <laughs> that this is something you go in and you just, you just like it, you know, it's not something you go in and scratch your head and sit and... People very rarely come up to me and say, what does it mean if I show it in somewhere like a church? If I show it in an art gallery, people come up and say, what does it mean? Because if things are in an art gallery, people think they have to mean something, because there's this idea that art means something. Well, my notion is that art does something, not that it means something. Its meaning is what it does. Um, it's a, a catalyst for some kind of conceptual behavior in the viewer or audience. Um, but the, that question, what does it mean, really says, what does it symbolize? and I'm not interested in what it symbolizes, really. I'm not working in that area. Um, but as soon as you take out of art galleries, people don't ask that kind of question. And different people come, you know, kids come, old people come, office workers come. One of the best um, experiences, I've had many good experiences with these shows, but one of the best ones was talking to a group of office workers um, who I discovered were coming to the gallery every day in their lunch hour. They just bring their packed lunch and sit in the gallery uh, watching the show for their lunchtime. And that was the kind of use of it that I liked, that they were using it like, a, like you would use a park. There didn't happen to be a park anywhere near, but um, this served the same kind of purpose. And I like... Um, trying to pitch the thing into a different place than, than the art world would pitch it. The, the art world is so much to do with excluding people and with, you know, you can only maintain those kind of prices by exclusion, actually. That's, that's what it comes down to, I think. It's, it's very much part of an economic network that um, I, I don't disagree with. I can see the point of it and I can understand it like I can understand the commodities markets or the futures markets or any of those, those other markets. But I'm more interested in opening up a, another market. In reading about some of your early, early days or mid-early days, um, 
<laughs> I heard a lot of comments about how you would not save synthesizer patches and things like that on your synthesizer, but in the recent keyboard, you uh, you sent in a bunch of your DX7 patches to them. Seems to be an attitude shift. I guess that's because it's easy to store them on the DX7. I never bothered before because you had to write it all down, and I couldn't stand doing that. It's just awful. Um, on the DX7, you do have the choice of easily entering it into a memory. So I do. The, the funny thing is I hardly ever reuse them myself. Um, there might be a few that I re return to quite frequently, but I nearly always make new patches for new situations. So there are a few that are kind of templates that I work from, but I hardly ever use a sound exactly as it is in the patch. Um, the situation always demands it to be modified. So I actually store them really for other people because <laughs> I have quite a few friends who use my patches and actually normally do the same kind of thing. They take my patch as a basis and then adapt it to their needs. Um, it's really a question of how easy it is to do. If it's easy, I'll do it. If it involves more than half a minute of doing something, then I won't do it. <laughs> Life's too short <laughs> to sit there writing down figures all day. You still have uh, a lingering reputation as a master synthesis, which you've, you've denied uh, from the start, but you, you still have that, that reputation, despite all the disparaging things you've said about synthesizers over, over the years. Um, I was wondering if you still felt the same way now that you are using with the digital synthesizers and with the samplers. I don't use samplers. I'm not very interested in them. Um, as conceptually, synthesizers interest me much more than samplers do. A sampler is a tape recorder as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it isn't conceptually very much more interesting than a tape recorder. So I, I'm tape recorders I've known about for a long time, I still use them, but they don't quite thrill me in the same way. Um, synthesizers, however, do interest me for two reasons. One, because they, they do introduce new sounds into the world. And the other is because in working with them, I learn a lot about how sounds are made up. And the DX7 has been very useful for that. I use it almost as much as a research tool for seeing how a sound is made. Uh, what happens when this hits this? Um, why does this sound like that? Uh, you know, some kind of quite technical things. You find that doing two, a particular, a very specific relationship between two operators produces something that sounds like a grand piano, say. And you think, well, now I wonder what it is in a grand piano, in the physical uh, makeup of a grand piano that demands precisely this relationship for its imitation, as, as it were. Um, I'm not interested in imitating grand pianos per se, but I am interested in finding out how sounds work. So I use it as a kind of research tool, I think, as much as anything else. For me, the problem with synthesizers has always been that the sound that you hear is a direct result of the movement of a very small number of electrons. Therefore, the regularity and, uh, what should we say, the evenness of the sound is awe-inspiringly boring. <laughs> um, a grand piano is the, move, is the result of the movement of so many factors, um, so many environmental, climatic, um, physical, uh, geological factors, that in fact a piano never sounds the same twice. You know, I have a grand piano at home which I never play other than to sit in the room bashing one note. I hit a note and I listen to it decay. I hit the note again, I listen to it decay. And I, I sh probably think I spend probably a couple of hours a week hitting that note. 
I got one on this, it's a G sharp on my grand piano that I just love the sound of. And it never is uninteresting to me. It, I do it because I'm interested in it. But I do it also because the, it is never the same twice. There's always little exotic overtones that I haven't heard before or that are oscillating in different ways. Now, my only, my reservation about synthesizers has been that they aren't like that. You wouldn't hit a, D sharp, a G sharp on a DX7 for two hours uh, and expect the same kind of excitement from it. So my solution has been to to make the equipment unreliable in various ways. I mean, I used to like the old synthesizers because they were like that. Uh, my first synthesizers, the EMS and the um, AKS, the, the suitcase one that followed, the early Mini Moog, they were all fairly unstable and they had, had a certain character that, I mean, character is really to do with deviations, not with regularity. These had a lot of character. <laughs> they were very, very Latin in that sense. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, I used to feed them through all sorts of devices that also had a lot of character <laughs> um, that were in various ways unpredictable. And the interaction of a lot of these things started to create sounds that had an organic unevenness to me. Um, well, I still do this. I, I do this with the DX7. I I use a lot of processors. I've also found ways to destabilize the DX7 a little bit um, to create interactions between it and other instruments that are more interesting. <laughs> um, what do you mean? How do you destabilize it? Well, I don't have a very good voltage supply, for instance. Um, I, well, within the patches, I build in s certain elements that don't repeat. For instance, on the first DX, on the DX7-1, the, if you want to be technical, the, um, um, the level of envelope generator 4 um, is there's something wrong with it in the basic programming of the synthesizer and you can use that to create non-repeating patches. Um, if you have that set to, I think it's to under 50, a setting of under 50, you'll find that the synthesizer doesn't quite know how to handle it and it behaves unpredictably. They've sorted this out, unfortunately, on the, on the second generation. So I still use the first one, and that's an important element of quite a few of my patches. Um, so I, I try to find things in the synthesizer that show a little bit of flair and personality. When you're talking about uh, hitting one key on the piano and listening to it decay for hours, it reminded me of that Lamont Young piece that you used to do. Oh, yes, the um, X for Henry Flint. Yeah, well, that was very important piece in my life. <laughs> um, yeah, that, I think that was the first piece of music I ever performed for an audience. And it, it really was the beginning of a, a way of listening for me. That and the Steve Reich piece, It's Gonna Rain. Um, it's Gonna Rain was very, very important as well. And both of them had a lesson for me that I've never forgotten, which is that the the relationship between input and output is a very complex one <laughs> within a piece. Um, the It's Gonna Rain uses a very, very small amount of original material but it produces a very complex shifting output. How does it do this? Well, I won't answer that now. I've written about this and it's, it's a very fascinating process how it does that. Um, but it, it interested me that the artwork could be a system of amplifying detail, uh, of 
amplifying by analysis in a way. Um, and for me, the, what's interesting about minimalism is not that people use very few elements, but that very few elements can mean a lot. <laughs> um, it's not just the use of a small number of elements, it's the, the understanding that there are systems other than some of them intrinsic but mostly extrinsic to the artwork that multiply those elements and that um, uh, that generate the work. I, I don't know I don't know how to get into this without getting into it on a complicated level. I wrote an essay about this that be much better to read that over the radio if you want this the answer um, it was called organizing and generating variety in the arts and it was about a particular piece of music um, paragraph seven of the great learning by Cornelius Cardio and it talked about the mechanisms some of the mechanisms that were available to artists <laughs> um, by which they could no i can't I can't find a simple way into this, and I hate leaving thoughts incomplete, so you just have to be patient for a minute. You've got plenty of tape, it's not expensive. Okay. What interested me about minimalism, I think, well, my understanding of minimalism through composers like Lamont Young, Steve Reich, Cardio as well to an extent, was that the weight of the creative act was shifted somewhere else. The, the previous concept the concept that most people still carry of art is that the the artist does all this work and there's a sort of a big creative act that is tied up into an object so finally there's this object and you the observer come along and you look at it and it sort of just pours into you well of course this isn't how anyone has ever looked at anything looking is a very active process but minimalism makes it very clear that it's not only a very active process, but it's a very creative process as well. When, when you're listening to It's Gonna Rain, if you're enjoying it, what you're enjoying is your own perceptual processes doing something. Um, they're reconfiguring that material. They're making constructions of it, they're comparing this moment with that moment, um, they're filtering things, they're amplifying other things. So really a lot of what's happening with minimal music is, is not so much to do with you looking at a work operating outside of yourself, it's to do with lo you looking at your brain operating on something. Um, and that's a very fascinating process, you're watching your you're watching not only a work, but your own perceptual processes in response to that. What happens is that you either find it intensely annoying, which a lot of people do, or you become, as, as I did and still do, you become very, very intrigued by it because you're listening to a tape loop. It's a very short loop, it's maybe two seconds long, less than that even. Um, but it doesn't ever sound the same twice. Something is going on there. You know, because of the technical nature of the thing, that it is always the same. But it isn't sounding the same. So your mind is doing something there, which is interesting. In fact, it turns out your mind is doing a lot of things that are quite interesting. Um, now, to a composer like myself, of limited <laughs> technical resources, this is good news, because it means that 
not only do I have um, the technologies that I'm used to using, like recording studios, synthesizers, blah, 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 at my fingertips, I also have this big device, the human brain, which I can also somehow make use of as part of the work. I can say, well, what I put on this record isn't the end of the thing. What I put on this record then goes out to a brain somewhere and that brain is going to start doing things. What kind of thing will it do? So I'm, I'm writing that into the work as well. I don't know what question you asked me. What was it? <laughs> it actually started somewhere back with Lamont Young's uh, oh, Exit Henry yeah. Flint, oh, yeah. but that's okay. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. Could you, do you consider that, that that concept is used in your ambient pieces? Yes, I do quite a lot because um, habituation is a part of part of what I've been talking about. When you habituate to something, you begin to filter aspects of it out. Um, for example, we habituate, we are habituated to traffic noise. When you play your tape back, you'll hear there's quite a lot more of it than we think there is at the moment. Um, we habituate to things and we cancel them out of our attention. But by, by doing that, what happens is that that attention doesn't go to waste. It's then more, it's then refocused onto more exotic and transitory details. So um, what happens a lot with repetitive music is that it doesn't seem repetitive because you, you cancel out the common material and you start to focus on little differences that are happening on repetitions. Um, so I rely on that for a lot in the... Um, most of the ambient music is quite repetitive. <laughs> um, in the universe of music, this would class as quite repetitive music. And I'm relying on the notion that Repetition is actually a way of pushing the listening mind onto details, moving it away from um, certain aspects and pushing it onto smaller and smaller, uh, more transitory details, including the transitory details of, like I said before, of your perceptual mechanisms at work and of the... Um, the the factors of the location that you're in. Uh, you you could be very aware of how different it sounds in this room than it did in that room, in this place, from that place, so on. Do you still use the oblique strategy cards? Well, yes, I, actually, I was just thinking of one then. Uh, exactly, yes, it's <laughs> the very same one. Um, I, I don't use them in the sense that I used to. I don't have a pack with me that I pull them out of. But I think it's because I have them all in my mind anyway. So um, they're like aphorisms for me now. I just I have them around there, and I think yes, what I'm saying is actually the same as that's what that was. <laughs> that's what that is. I've often thought that I should someday. Oh, in fact, I started doing this some years ago. I I thought it would be interesting to produce a little uh, a short commentary on each one of those um, because some of them have have proven so durable they, they really do keep coming back to me and I keep thinking yeah that really is that's a good one that one and I've often thought that it would be interesting to other people to to read um, a description of what those things have meant for me and for other people, what situations they've been used in, you know, what places they've been used in. In a way that may defeat the purpose of them, because right. they'll lock them into what you were thinking about them and not. That's quite true. Yes, it could do. Such a commentary would have to be extremely open-ended. <laughs> it would have to be conveyed as, as clearly... Um, 
personal uh, rather than the interpretation. Could you explain a little bit how you used them on uh, Another Green World? That was a long time ago. <laughs> well, the way I used to always use them was um, as a way of jumping off the train, as I was saying earlier. Um, when you're in a studio, well, at that time I was a lot poorer than I am now, and studios were relatively much more expensive to me. So it was a high-pressure situation for me. And it was a situation where, like everybody else, I thought, God, I've got to come out with something at the end of the day. Uh, the thought of spending a day in the studio and not walking home with a little cassette of what you'd done that day and how wonderful it was, was really frightening. Because it meant, um, you know, 300, 400 pounds wasted. And that was a lot of money to me. So the tendency was to um, think, I've got to get something done, must get something done, and to do anything. Now, sometimes that works, you know. Sometimes the, the catalyst of that kind of pressure is quite useful. But more often than not, it means that you, you do something, uh, you repeat something, you do something safe and just so that you can go home and feel, did something today at least, rather than go home and feel nothing came out of today at all. So the oblique strategies were really a way of getting past that panic by reminding myself that there were considerations, there were broader considerations than the ones I could remember that moment in sitting in the studio. So when I got into a panic of some kind thinking, oh dear, where is this going? It's not going anywhere. Oh, this just sounds like what I was doing two years ago. Or all those kind of things that frighten you. <laughs> um, I'd pull out one of those strategies and it would tell me something, really. It would say, okay, we'll try this course of action. And I was quite religious about them. I used to absolutely drop everything and follow that course of action. So I didn't pull them out lightly because I, I knew it meant jettisoning. It could mean jettisoning whatever I was doing at the time to do something completely bizarre sometimes, like um, take a long walk or something. The last thing you want to do if you're panicking about not doing anything that day. Um, so they weren't, I never used them very casually. Um, Can you give me an instance where it shifted? You know, something oh, there's so many. I, I don't know if I can, well, I'll try to think of one in particular. Um, I mean, that whole record was dense with instances like that. Uh, well, yes, all right, I, I can remember a specific one. The last piece on Another Green World is called Spirits Drifting, as I recall. I think that's true. <laughs> I have God, it's such a long time ago. Um, when I started making that piece, I was really at the end of my tether. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't know where I was going with anything. I was in one of those sort of artistic crises of confidence, you know, of thinking, it all sounds so pathetic, this stuff. Why can't I do those wonderful songs like Babies on Fire and that kind of thing instead of this awful, boring, tedious crap? I can't. Th but I didn't have the commitment to do Babies on Fire or that kind of thing either. So, I mean, you shouldn't. I suppose it's bad for your image to ever admit to that kind of thing, but I can tell you it's always happening with every artist that I know of where. What's new to you is frightening. It really is. It's, it always is that you're, you're in that position again of being right at the beginning and not knowing what the hell you're doing. Um, well, I was in that position of having gone through a lot of things and I was at the beginning of something. It turned out to be a very important beginning 
subsequent years showed me, but at the time it seemed like it could be a complete and dead loss. <laughs> um, so I was working on this piece, Spirits Drifting, and it was sort of a programmed piece where I had a system of actions that I was performing. And for me to even see what was going to happen required that I did a lot of this, a lot of these actions and processes before I even knew what the piece was going to start sounding like. I'd been working on it for the whole day and it seemed that we had almost nothing on tape and it sounded like a piece of crap to me at the time. <laughs> it really sounded awful and I was this is the truth. I was standing at the synthesizer crying as I was playing it because I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. The, the previous four days had not yielded any interesting work. So this was the end of a week of um, that looked like it was all going to be a waste of time. And for me, since I usually, I used to think that to make an album took a month. That was a quarter of my album making time. Um, I was in desperate, a desperate frame of mind. Yeah, I, I can remember standing there playing this thing with tears <laughs> running down my face. God, what am I doing? And I, I took out an oblique strategy and it said, how does the wording of this one goes? It says, yes, because the question in my, I always framed a question before I took out an oblique strategy. That was important, of thinking, right, what do I actually want to know? What, what am I doing this for? What do I want to know? And what I want to know then was, what the hell am I going to do with this piece? or with my life in general, you know, the whole thing had been called into question. I pulled it out and it said, just carry on. <laughs> and I, the first thing was that I pissed myself laughing because <laughs> it was such a, such a low level answer to what I was expecting, you know, I was expecting something that would have me sitting down scratching my head. It said, just carry on. So I just carried on and in the next half hour or so, that piece suddenly gelled into something. Um, and in fact, it gelled into something that I still like very much. And it became the seed for a lot of other work. But I know if I hadn't pulled that card out, then I wouldn't have carried on. I was desperate for a card that told me, destroy everything, or <laughs> start again, or retire from music forever, or <laughs> become a house painter or something but it just said just carry on and I did when you look back now do songs like Babies on Fire and Papa Nigo Blowtorch do those seem like they were written by another person yeah nearly everything I did before last week seems like it was done by another person I have to say um, and in a way they are you know they it reminds you of your own there's so many voices in you all the time and circumstances are calling one of those people to the fore or another one. There's, the mix is always being adjusted within you. You know, I always think of myself like a, a sort of 48-track <laughs> tape of some kind and it's always possible to remix that and circumstances will be remixing that all the time. So, I, I can still recognize in me some of that person, but the emphasis has shifted a lot. He was a very extreme mix of, of the person, the whole bunch of possibilities that makes me. Um, he was one extreme mix. Now I'm, this week, I'm in another mix. <laughs> um, How would you characterize that, that first extreme mix? That mix. Well, he wasn't, that was the first one that you would know about, but there were other pretty extreme mixes before him. 
I mean, when I was at art school, I was doing a lot of remixing. Um, I don't know, it's still a rather... Well, it's certainly a, a character connected to being that age as well. That age at that time. Um, I don't know. I don't. I'm not interested in him at the moment, so it's hard for me to focus on him. Um, how long do you want me to take making this answer? Because I could do, but it will take me a long time because I have to. I have to think about all that again. At the, to be honest, at the present moment, it's about as interesting to me as what I did at school. <laughs> Um, yeah, I can't. I'll, it will take me a long while. Let's I move off. Can't it get now. into that one. In in your semi-early days, you would talk about being a non-musician. That was a label that I guess you gave yourself, and that other people definitely picked up on. And I guess you may might still consider yourself that way, although you're very skilled at making music in a certain way mm -hmm. at this point certainly but even back then you always surrounded yourself with musicians who I think most people consider virtuoso at, at, at what they're doing I'm thinking particularly with someone like Robert Fripp yes well this was a very interesting experience for both of us <laughs> because by saying I was a non-musician I certainly never meant to imply that musicians were therefore uninteresting what I meant to imply was that there were there were new possibilities about which actually required new talents and they were not traditional musical talents and the use of the studio was one of those things because at the time, this was in the early 70s that was just really the beginning of 24-track studio and extensive processing and all of the things that we now regard as standard studio practice well those were those were um, technologies and techniques that really weren't anything to do with traditional musical skills but were of course of great interest to musicians um, well what I what happened with a lot of those virtuosi that you're talking about was that we formed I realize now that what we did was formed an extended musician. <laughs> um, they could do what they already knew how to do. They didn't really have the um, familiarity with technology. Well, it's not only the familiarity with the technology, but the concept that the technology was more than simply a, a decorative... Um, transmitter of what you were doing, but that it was a part of what you were doing. Um, so when I worked with Fripp, for example, we became one musician, really. Uh, it wasn't a case of two musicians playing together. It was a case of me hearing what he was doing and somehow extending that into the, uh, by the um, things that I knew were possible with studios and with synthesizers. Um, and I really enjoyed that role. I still enjoy that role a lot. It's a role that I've done with Harold Budd quite a lot as well, where um, it's a nice position for the musicians because they're responding to what I'm doing at the same time. It's not something that is, um, well, you play your bit and then I'll tart it up in the studio. It doesn't usually happen like that. <laughs> what usually happens is that they're playing and I am doing something with the sound at the same time and they're hearing that and of course their playing is then a response to that. So that the circuit is a live circuit if you see what I mean. That's why I say it's like one musician rather than two. Um, and of course the, the, the point about virtuosi is that they're they're very capable of making those responses. So Fripp, for example, 
is such a good musician that he wasn't easily thrown by some of the things that were coming back to him through the through the loudspeakers because um, sometimes they they could be quite far removed from what the musician was doing uh, you know the sound could be quite removed in quite complex ways from what they were doing and well an, an unimaginative musician would be thrown by that your collaborations with Hassel are a little bit different than that? Well, John, of course, is, has combined the two functions in himself anyway. Um, he does, part of his playing is, um, is to do with understanding that all of that isn't additional, all of that processing and so on. It's very much part of what he does. In fact, I, I always am surprised that all these electronic music magazines don't pay more attention to him because he really is one of the electronic composers of the day. You know, he's one of the most interesting people in that area. Um, but of course, it's also what I was doing with him. Uh, there's no reason why what I do shouldn't be additional to that as well. Um, and. The other thing I was doing was trying to... <laughs> I'm sort of an evangelist for his music. I, I really think it's important music, and beautiful music too. And I always wish that people would listen to it more. <laughs> he's in town this week, isn't he? Yeah, he often is now. Yeah, Yeah, I think he told me he's going to be working with you, isn't he? Work, yeah. uh, doing some on the live album? Or? Yeah, that's right. Let's talk briefly just about uh, your productions with Bowie... Talking Heads and U2, which were different from a lot of your earlier productions when you were doing Ultravox, say, Devo, mm -hmm. and the No New York sessions, which were inexperienced groups in the studio for pretty much the first time, or in a major studio for the first time. Mm -hmm. And then all these other people obviously already had a, a lot of time under their belts in the studio. How was, how was that different? Um not as different as you'd think. Actually, I never really thought of that before, that there was a difference there. Um, what tends to happen is, that I think, is that when people are first in the studio, the work tends to be more documentation of what they're already doing. Um, as they, and, and that's because they are not yet aware of what a studio does. Um, as they spend more time coming back to studios, they start to understand, oh yes, no, right, we don't work this thing out beyond this point because we know that when we go in the studio, things are going to be different. We're going to be responding to what is happening there. So as time goes on, people come into studios with less finished pieces of work. And this isn't laziness. It's an understanding that you can't finish the work outside the studio if you're interested in using what the studio can do. So the other way around of saying this is that when people start recording, they generally come in with work that is very finished. And so the studio, what the studio can do is less important at that point, because the work is already intact within its own terms, um, pretty much. Um, and, of course, you can impose production on those things, um, but it's often not the right thing to do. And the, the times I would do that was if I, if I heard something and I thought, either that it wasn't complete in its own terms or that there was really was a possibility available in, in the studio that would suddenly bring this to life in a new way. But um, I, I very rarely produced things for the sake of it, you know. So quite often things just sounded great as they were and I would just record them. Other times they didn't and we would start then playing with it in the studio. Um, I don't mind not being a producer. 
sometimes. You know, I, I don't mind if my job is just to get something that is already there onto the tape. Conversely, I'm very happy if my job is to create something out of nothing as well. I remember reading that you thought that, I believe it was low, was sort of a new direction in rock music that rock music should be taking. Yeah, it was. Um, both sides of that record are, are, are new directions, in a way. Well, of course, the first side, just on a purely <laughs> technical level, the drum sound of the first side of Low became the drum sound for the next X years. I mean, it still is now to some extent. Um, but the rhythm section feeling altogether was rather a new feeling for rock music, I think. Um, it was a, a sort of industrial extrapolation of what was going on in soul and funk records. It had a, a very much more European feel than those things had. Um, on the, the other side of the record, of course, was another direction. Um, it was one that I think I had already taken, but it, it was very much the, the landscape direction, the sense of um, one of the things composers are doing is making landscapes, soundscapes. It was very conscious on that. In fact, both sides were type of soundscapes. One side was urban and industrial. The other side was suburban. <laughs> it was sort of on, it was the quiet spots in the city, if you like. Brian Eno from 1987, recorded in London, originally for the radio series Totally Wired. I've had several more interviews with Eno since then, and we'll be dropping them and many other unexpurgated conversations over time. Next week, I've got a new interview, though, with the ambient guitar band Hammock. Their latest album, Love in the Void, is the Echo CD of the month for February. You can read my review at echoes.org. That's also where you'll find all things Echoes. Once again, that's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S, dot org, O-R-G. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes podcast from PRX. It was edited by Echoes producer Jeff Town. See you next time, tonight, on the radio somewhere in the country or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want.